Imagine for a moment that Jesus is running for president. What do you think the symbol of his political platform would be? Perhaps I'm wrong, but I feel pretty convinced that it wouldn't be an elephant or a donkey. Maybe a lion or a lamb or some hybrid of the two. What about his campaign slogan? What would that read? Businessinsiders.com says, and I quote, an effective slogan will sum up a candidate's pitch to the country in a few words and be powerful enough to cut through the endless onslaught of information in people's lives. So maybe the headlines on Jesus' website, instead of reading, the buck stops here, would be the denarius stops here. Perhaps you would click on Jesus' website and it would read, I'm here to make Israel great again. Or perhaps it would say, build back the temple. Who knows? Who knows what it would say? Well, Jesus is not running for political office. But all four of the Gospels make a bold political claim. Jesus is king. And if we focus in on the gospel according to Luke, at least one of these perspectives, may I suggest his slogan is this, Jesus saves sinners. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus comes and reads the scroll of Isaiah, he says that, quote, I've come to free captives. Jesus says, I've come to give sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus says that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus saves sinners. Today in Luke chapter 7, we don't just get to hear those words. We get to see those words in action. I love how one pastor expressed the beauty that the Gospels portray. He says, in the Gospels, we encounter the risen Christ in person. We learn not just about him and what he theologically accomplished for us and what we're supposed to do as a result. But we get to see the sweet lion and the roaring lamb in action, loving people, showing compassion, teaching and discipling, rebuking and correcting, suffering and ultimately dying for us. So today we want to see this sweet lion. We want to see this roaring lamb. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and we will be in verses 36 through 50. And as you're turning there, let me share with you what I've been praying for myself and us as a church and anyone listening for that matter, it's this, that you would see the depth of your sin and brokenness only then to grasp the immensely deeper forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. And this will transform, I pray that this passage will transform your understanding of who God is and what he's like. Maybe as you look in the mirror of God's word this morning, you, you see your own heart and perhaps see what you're truly like. And it will also change how you view others around you. So let's read Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. 
Hear the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, as we read your word this morning and receive it, would you use the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate it for us? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So what does Luke want us to understand from this passage this morning? Well, let me tell you from the front, and then we're going to go back and walk through this story, and then think about the characters at the end. But here's the main idea. If you understand yourself to be reasonably righteous, you will feel, feel very little need for Jesus, and your love for him will be minimal. But if you understand yourself to be utterly unrighteous, you will feel a great need for Jesus and your love for him will be massive. So we have minimal love or massive love. Now as we enter into this story this morning, we find Jesus having a meal at the home of a Pharisee. Which is interesting because if you were reading Luke chapter 7, especially in verses 33 through 36, 
35, you would see that the Pharisees don't like Jesus. According to them, he is a glutton. He's a drunkard. And worst of all, perhaps, he's a friend of sinners. So we don't know exactly why this Pharisee invited Jesus into his home. But he doesn't appear to be completely opposed to Jesus, at least at the start. Perhaps he's heard the reports that Jesus is a prophet, as he would later indicate, and he wants to find out for himself, is this guy really sent from God? At the same time, although he may not be completely opposed to Jesus, it becomes rather obvious that Jesus isn't being treated well. Typically, the host in the ancient Near East, when you have somebody over for dinner, especially at a, a dinner party like this, you would greet the guests with a kiss. You would remove their sandals and wash their feet. You would anoint them with a few drops of the latest olive oil. None of this happened for Jesus, at least from the host. So here we are, sitting at this meal. We don't have all the details, but most likely guests are reclining around the table. Perhaps it's a nice evening. And meals in the ancient Near East, when you would gather around the table, you would lean typically in on your left elbow like this, and you would kind of recline, and your feet would be away from the table for obvious reasons. And you would be served food, and you would use your right hands. And so you can imagine what's going on, kind of lounging around the table. It sounds super odd to us, but it was super common to them. So all these people are reclining around the table, relaxing, perhaps enjoying a nice meal. And wherever this happened, maybe it was in a courtyard in this Pharisee's house, that was common. Or maybe it was in his house. Wherever it was, outsiders could clearly see what was going on and hear what was going on. Sometimes you would have an honored guest, maybe the new rabbi in town. And he would talk about a new theological truth or something about the scriptures that you would under, want to understand. And what a privilege it would be to be sitting at this table and engage in these conversations. So here we are, maybe servants are serving various kinds of food. A pleasant discussion is happening about the scriptures. Perhaps there's an honored guest. Maybe there's a slight breeze in the air cooling you down from the heat of the day. But then in verse 37, things get awkward. And this is just the beginning. Behold. See, Luke's grabbing our attention. There's an interruption happening to this pleasant scene. The camera begins to pan away from this aesthetically pleasing table and over in the corner we see this repulsive woman and everyone around the table knows exactly who she is and what she has done. She is a sinner. Most likely what this implies perhaps is that she was a prostitute. Now, before you sit here and assume that you're on Jesus' side, imagine with me for a moment that you're hosting a, a cookout or a barbecue in your backyard. There's family, there's friends, 
The new neighbors down the street, you invited them over as well. Perhaps you did this because you want to get to know them and even share the gospel with them. It's a nice evening. There's good discussion, laughter in the air. Kids are playing. Perhaps there's no face masks. And then this dirty, disheveled, long-haired, matted, homeless man shows up crying, asking for help. What's your reaction? Yeah, you, you feel that in your heart, the need to, to get him out of there, the fear of he could hurt somebody, we need to get him away. That's what the Pharisees were thinking at this, this table party, this dinner party. And I think so often we assume we're on Jesus' side, but I wonder if the Pharisees, and we'll think about this further, are not in here for us to look in the mirror sometimes. But why would a woman like this show up at a place like this? Where she knew, she, she knew she wouldn't have been invited. She knew she wouldn't have been welcomed. Well, perhaps she's heard the news about this new rabbi. As you read the Gospel of Luke, you see so far Jesus has preached his message, his manifesto of the kingdom, if you will. And Jesus has quite a radical message. He seems to let outsiders in his kingdom. And perhaps she's heard that this new rabbi, this new teacher, is a friend of sinners. And so she thought she would go see him. And you can imagine the disgusted looks the whisper, the snarls on their face as this woman holding her jar of ointment walks over and stands behind Jesus' feet. Tears begin to stream down her face and onto the feet of Jesus. She doesn't have a towel. And, and you need to feel the weight of this scandalous act, what's going on. She lets down her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet as the tears are streaming down her face, and you didn't let down your hair if you were a woman in the first century in front of anybody except your husband. That would have been viewed as scandalous. But she doesn't have a towel. She's sobbing, weeping, crying. So she lets down her hair to clean Jesus' feet. And then she repeatedly begins to kiss his feet. And while sobbing and perhaps Shaking, You know what it's like to cry uncontrollably. She anoints his feet with the ointment. And while all of this is happening, Luke zooms back out from the woman. And we begin to catch the horrified and appalled face of the Pharisee who invited Jesus. And we learn in verse 39 what he is thinking. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. And he said to himself, so he's, he's thinking this. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And as he is thinking this, Jesus looks at him. And he says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Up until this point, he's just been called the Pharisee, the Pharisee, the Pharisee. Pharisee. Now when Jesus addresses him, it's personal. Simon, in a sense, glaring into his eyes, I know who you are. <laughs> and as Jesus shows us, he knows exactly what he is thinking. 
So Jesus addresses him. Simon replies, say it, teacher. And notice the irony that unfolds right here. Luke wants us to see this. As Simon becomes convinced that Jesus is not a prophet, Jesus' response proves that he is. For Jesus does indeed know the character not only of the woman, but also of Simon. You see the irony? Simon's sitting there thinking in his head that Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus looks across the table, reads his mind, and begins to tell him not only the character of the woman, but of Simon himself. Following the pattern of the prophet Nathan's storytelling to call out King David's specific sin, Jesus, the greater prophet, uses a story to engage Simon. And while the woman is still standing there, this is all still happening, the woman's still standing there, weeping. Jesus begins to hold up a mirror to Simon's heart in verse 41. He tells this story. There was a certain money lender. And there's two people who, are, who, earn, who owe debt to this money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarii would have been most uh, estimated about a day's wage. So think about working 50 days and then think about working 500 days. It's a massive debt. Neither of them had the money to pay this money lender back. So he forgives debts of both. To which Jesus asks Simon, Simon, which one of these debtors would love the money lender more? Easy answer for Simon. The one who had the greater debt, I suppose. And Jesus affirms his answer. And unlike many parables of Jesus or stories that he tells, this one is really easy to understand. Because then he, takes, he looks at Simon and he continues to talk to him. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? To which, to which everybody at the table is probably thinking, yeah, we see this woman. She's making quite the scene. Of course we see her. What are you going to do about her? Rabbi? Teacher? Prophet? Perhaps now's the time when Jesus calls her out. Perhaps now's the time when Jesus says, stop touching me. Don't you realize who I am? How dare you come near me looking like this? Servants, get her out of here. Jesus can win the religious leader's approval. The most powerful men in Israel and support by distancing himself from this sinner. Friends, but we're reminded that Jesus isn't seeking Approval ratings. He's seeking sinners. Candidly, Jesus makes the meaning of this story or this parable that he told very clear. The two debtors no doubt represent Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman whose name we do not know. And Jesus begins to rebuke Simon. Simon, he says... Do you see this woman in verse 44? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You haven't given me any kiss. And she won't stop kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. And she used her own oil to anoint my feet. 
In verse 47, as if you don't feel the tension enough already in this story, you feel it here. He looks at Simon and he says, Simon, this woman's sins are forgiven. Her sins are many. Jesus doesn't deny that. He says her sins are many, but they are forgiven. Her debt is great, but she is forgiven, for she loved much. And then Jesus turns to the woman herself. Tears still streaming down her face. And he says to her, knowing exactly who she is, knowing exactly what she has done, knowing her future mistakes as well. He looks at her in the face, gently yet loud enough for everyone around to hear him. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. She's been forgiven of her sins through repentance. That's Luke's message. We don't know exactly when she came to know Jesus. Perhaps she heard John the Baptist talking about him. Perhaps she heard Jesus preaching about his friend of sinners and the need to repent. We don't know exactly when she made that decision, when she repented of her sin. But it's clear, based as you read the entire Gospel of Luke, that she has indeed repented of her sins and her forgiveness. How do we know that she's forgiven? It's made known through her great act of love toward Jesus. And don't miss something we, we can easily overlook because, of course, it's Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say you need to go to the temple to get your sins forgiven. He doesn't say you need to go see the local priest. He doesn't say here's the process. He looks her in the eyes and by his own authority he says your sins are forgiven. And there's silence. You can imagine the, the silence around the table. Perhaps the anger of the other Pharisees sitting there. They're stunned. They're stunned. Those who were at the table, verse 49. Who is this that he even forgives sins? And Jesus looks at the woman again. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We don't know what Simon, the Pharisee, ended up doing with Jesus. Did he see Jesus' piercing story and repent of his sins? We don't know. We don't know what really what happened to the woman after this. And the guests around the table. It's kind of this open-ended ending, isn't it? And I think what Luke is doing is inviting his readers into this story. Asking us, how, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to your sin? And so that's what we need to think about. And a helpful way to do that is to think about the characters who are portrayed in this story and perhaps hold them up as, as a mirror for us to look into. And so let's spend a few moments thinking about the characters that are portrayed in this story. First, let's consider the Pharisee. And the point of the story for the Pharisee is that he completely minimized his debt before God. He does not comprehend his own sin. He minimizes his debt. Now, before we thank God that we are not like this Pharisee, 
keep this in mind. The Pharisees were devoted to the study and practice of Scripture. The Pharisees believed in a coming judgment and the need to be righteous for that coming judgment. Does this sound familiar? And if we were hosting this dinner party, as I alluded to earlier, and this type of woman showed up, I think my heart would respond, at least tend to respond like Simon. So what does Jesus show Simon the Pharisee and in so doing teach us? Well, the point of this story isn't to compare the quantity of Simon's sin and that of the woman's. He's not in a sense saying, well, her sin's here and your sin's here. No, both are sinners. Both are guilty before God, but only one realizes their great need. That's the point of the story. And Simon has grossly miscalculated his debt before God. And it's evident, it's manifest in the way that he treats Jesus and the woman. So what about you? Do you understand yourself to be a sinner and in desperate need of a savior? Or do you consider yourself a decent person? I know I'm talking to the choir. I know I'm talking to the church. But Jesus was talking to a Pharisee, a religious leader. He would probably outduel us in our Bible memorization. He would probably outduel us in our church attendance. He would be here at both services every week. So do you consider yourself a decent person? I think it's, it's really easy for us to admit we're sinners. I don't think that's that difficult. We mess up. Nobody's perfect. That would be our campaign slogan. Right? Nobody's perfect. Everybody loves that. But when you start getting into particular sins, okay, where, where aren't you perfect? Where are you failing? And this is why Jesus, if, if you just live by outward standards and you're re relying on your external righteousness, when Jesus comes along and starts speaking, this is why it's so threatening and terrifying. Because he doesn't address those things. He never got involved in these theological debates with the Pharisees when they always tried to trap him. He just started staring into their heart. And you know what you can do if you have a gaping heart problem before a holy God? Nothing. An extra dose of morality isn't going to help you. Now, don't misunderstand. Morality is a good thing. We want to live righteous, but not apart from the work of Christ. In fact, we can't. What about others? Do you show compassion for sinners like Jesus? Or do you reduce others to their sins, like Simon the Pharisee? He saw this woman. He, he didn't perceive she's made in the image of God. He didn't remember Isaiah 55 when he says, God is not like us, for he shows compassion. She made those decisions, we might say. She should have known it would have ended up like this. He got involved in the gang. He sold those drugs. He, he got what he deserved. Or consider your least favorite politician. I know you have one. How do you talk about them? What do you write about them for others to see? Sure, call out sin. But are we showing compassion for sinners at the same time? 
So when you look in this mirror of Simon, how much of yourself do you see? Because he minimized his debt before God. But we move on to the woman. If Simon minimized or misunderstood or miscalculated his debt, the point of the story is that the woman, she grasped her debt. She understood her debt. She properly understood herself, which is why she abandoned herself to Jesus. She didn't cling to her past filled with sin, failure, guilt, and shame. She didn't care what everyone else would think or say. Could you imagine being in her situation, coming before the religious leaders to come to Jesus? Most of us don't want to raise our hand and say we belong to Jesus. But she didn't care what anyone else thought or said. She didn't resolve to love God better. She met Jesus and was forgiven of her sins. Don't misunderstand what this passage is teaching. It can be a bit confusing. But this passage is not teaching that love is the basis of her forgiveness. This passage is teaching that love is the fruit of her forgiveness. A couple reasons why that's true. Verse 42, if you look at that. Notice that the cancellation of the debt comes before the gratitude. In verse 47... Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little. Forgiveness precedes this gratitude or this love. And in verse 50, it wasn't her love for Jesus that saved her. What was it? Her faith. Which is another way of saying trust. We love him as 1 John 4.19 says because he first loved us. And what Luke teaches us is that true faith happens when someone looks at Jesus, realizes God's forgiveness, and the proof of that faith is love for God. So again, what, what about you when you hold up the mirror of this, of this woman? Simple question, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? I don't think I have to spend much time explaining what love is, but perhaps a moment. Love is you want to spend time with someone. You want to hear about them. You sacrifice your own needs for the good of them. You want to give your time, your treasure for their good, for their glory. You put them before yourself. You run to a friend if you need them, somebody you love. Do you love Jesus? Has he captured your heart? Perhaps, Christian, you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I feel like I've lost that a little bit. It's hard to, to get again. I think that's one of the beauties of the gospel is look at Jesus this morning. Stare at Jesus this morning. Loving Jesus is not something that you have to work up by your own strength. It's like hearing a beautiful piece of music. You don't have to think in your mind and, and think, how do I love this? You just, you just hear it and it's beautiful and you love it. Or you see a beautiful scene, perhaps the Grand Canyon or the ocean. You don't have to try to convince yourself, do I love this? Do I not love this? What? No, it's, it's beautiful and you love it. And Luke is holding up Jesus in a way, just stare at him. Behold Jesus, his beauty, his compassion, 
His forgiveness. Let it stir your heart in affection and love for Jesus. And Christian, your identity, as this woman teaches us, is not wrapped up in what you have done or what you haven't done. And I think this particularly speaks to to women, especially in this passage. You see, women in the first century were mistreated, undervalued. And I would dare say that happens to be true today as well. Perhaps from society, perhaps in churches, even by leaders and, and pastors, evangelists. But Jesus welcomes you among his followers. So just remember this this morning, if you're in here and, and you're a woman following Jesus, you're not second cousins or household servants, you're sisters in Jesus. You're sisters. Notice how Luke 8 begins, which you could read later today. Who's following Jesus? The, the 12 apostles, but there's also some women, Mary, Magdalene, seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and Susanna, they were providing for Jesus' ministry. Your identity is not wrapped up in what you have or haven't done. So what do we learn from Jesus himself? We considered the Pharisee. He minimized his debts. And the woman clearly saw her debt. But there's more than two characters in this story. There's Jesus. And what does he have to do with debt? Well, if the first misunderstood, minimized, and the woman saw her debt. Luke is on, leading us on a journey to see that Jesus paid the debt. He paid it. And what do we learn from this particular story about Jesus himself? Well, I think we learn that Jesus truly is the friend of sinners. Outsiders become insiders at the table with Jesus. Jesus really does save sinners. It's not an empty campaign slogan. It's one thing to read Jesus talking about being friends with sinners and that he saves sinners. But this story is showing us that he actually does. It's true. He keeps his promises. He keeps his word. And as you read Luke, what you notice is that Jesus is on a journey. And along this journey, he interacts with numerous outsiders. More women, the tax collectors. You've got the story of Zacchaeus. You've got the prodigal son. And eventually, he reaches his destination which is a cross in between two thieves. And on that cross, he paid our debt of sin and of death. He who never incurred a penny of sin took our sin upon himself. And three days later, he rose again. He conquered that sin. He conquered death. And when we repent, when we abandon ourselves to Jesus, that life of Jesus, that record of Jesus' freedom of debt is ours. This is why Jesus could look at that woman in the eye and declare to her, based on his own authority, that her sins were forgiven. He was a great prophet. He is an amazing teacher. But friends, he is far more. He is, as Luke describes, the son of God. And forgiveness means that you don't have to ease your guilt with 
arguments about your own righteousness. We can stand before God in all of our neediness, our brokenness, our weakness, our moral failure, yet because of Jesus, be unafraid. So what about you again here this morning? Maybe you need to run to Jesus for the first time, like this woman. Or maybe you more align with the Pharisee. You've been in church a thousand times. And you need to come to Jesus. You need to realize, again, your great debt. So whether you've been here for years or your first Sunday in the church, the passage is the same for, for both. Abandon yourself to Jesus. And we're reminded, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you understand yourself to be reasonably righteous, you will feel very little need for Jesus and your love for him will be minimal. But if you understand yourself to be utterly unrighteous, you will feel a great need for Jesus and your love for him will be massive. So do you love him? Do you love him? As we conclude this morning, we do have the great privilege of participating in the Lord's Supper. As we shift from this particular passage of Scripture to the Lord's Supper, I think we're reminded that Christian maturity, growing as a Christian, is not moving on from the gospel, but it's being mastered by the gospel. Forgiveness creates a love to God, and in your love for him, you desire to think, do, and say things that are pleasing to him. But we are prone to forget. We are prone to let our affections be won by other desires. And so we need reminders of this forgiveness. Well, Jesus in his kindness and in his grace has given his church a few. We gather every week as a church, every Lord's Day, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And he's given us the Lord's Supper. And we're reminded when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we will do here in a moment, that Jesus still eats and drinks with sinners. The meal isn't over. So if you're here today, and you believe the same gospel that you've heard preached, you've repented of your sins and trusted, please join us in celebrating this meal that Jesus invites sinners who've repented not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything he has done. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe this gospel, this, this meal is not for you. At least not yet. But if you were to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, this meal could be for you next time when we celebrate. So why don't you take a moment in your pew... And consider the truths of this passage as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper.